Today we continue where we stopped last week in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and following. We're actually going to look at three verses only today. In detail, I'm going to read verses 3 through 12 because it forms a unit of thought that's very important to our understanding of the first three verses and everything else all the way through verse 12. So I'll be reading now from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in whatever version you have. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There are two big words that recur or synonyms associated with these two words in this book we know as 1 Peter. One is the word suffering. It could be suggested by the word trial, difficulty. These people were under intense pressure and not intense pressure because of the natural effects of life, but because of their relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, they were in big need of hope. And that's the other word which recurs throughout the book of 1 Peter. So as we work our way through this book, we will see both of these ideas. They're wed together, and God's going to prepare us for any eventuality in our lives that might be considered as an occasion for suffering for the name of Christ. Let's remember what Jesus had to say in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In his Sermon on the Plain, in Luke chapter 6, he says it a little differently, but basically the same way. Blessed are you when people are hostile to you and ostracize you and cast aspersions upon you. Rejoice, leap 
and be glad. The question for us is, are we leaping when we find ourselves spoken ill of? This will prepare us, this book of 1 Peter will prepare us, in the first place to have hope in the face of such difficulty, but then to really have an incredible joy in the face of our suffering. Lady Margaret Thatcher was given the responsibility and privilege to eulogize President Ronald Reagan at his funeral. She began the eulogy in a very appropriate way, and in a way it summarized everything else which followed. She says, we have lost a great president. We have lost a great American. We have lost a great man. And I have lost a dear friend. She was very accurate in her assessment of President Reagan, and she was also very transparent about her own feelings as she eulogized this great man. When we eulogize people, they're typically not alive, are they? They're already dead, as was the case when she eulogized President Reagan. But the Bible eulogizes the living God. The word translated blessed is a word that our word eulogy or eulogize comes directly from, letter from letter, transliterated from the original language of the New Testament into English. It's only used, it's used eight times in the New Testament. Whenever it's used, it's only used of God. It's never used of a human being. So we are called, in effect, to eulogize the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what is praiseworthy about our being born anew, born again? You might think the phrase translated born again is identical to the one which Jesus used in conversation with Nicodemus. You remember the story, do you not? It's recorded in the book of John chapter 3. Nicodemus came by night to visit Jesus. It's question as to whether he came by night because he was afraid of what others would say if they saw him coming to talk to this upstart prophet, this rabbi from Nazareth. But... It's also possible it's because he was a very busy guy and he just came to speak with Jesus at night because it was the only time he could fit such a visit into his schedule. After all, Jesus in John chapter 3 describes him this way as he speaks to him. You are the teacher, he says, of Israel and you do not understand these things about being born again. And then Nicodemus, what does he say? How can a man be born a second time? He cannot enter into his mother's womb again and be born, can he? You remember what Jesus said in response to that? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on to say that unless a man is born by water and by the Spirit, that person will not enter the kingdom of God, because Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What Jesus was speaking about, I believe, and I think it's verified by the fact that he says we have to be born twice, once in the flesh and once in the Spirit, and 
If I understand correctly, when a woman has her baby, one of the telltale signs that the baby's coming into this world is what? The water breaks, right? And when the Scripture says, unless we're born of water and the Spirit, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I think he's talking about a physical birth and a second birth. This is literally being born from above is the literal translation of the words. The word which is translated here is a word that is kin to that word, but it means a little different because the idea of God's having to cause us to be born again is in the word. And that's instructive, isn't it? Because one of the things that makes this whole matter of our being born again by God is the fact that it is praiseworthy due to the fact that it's unmerited. This new birth is nothing we can earn, nor is it anything which we deserve. Once more, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Now, we're real keen on the grace of God, and rightly so. And the grace of God basically could be summarized this way. Grace is getting something which we do not deserve. But we don't talk much about mercy, but mercy is really important, isn't it? Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And what is it that we deserve before we are born again? We deserve the judgment of God. We deserve the justice of God. And by God's grace, He has allowed us to experience the mercy of God by Christ substituting His life for our life when He died on the cross. And in that moment, of course, He was punished for us. He was judged for us. So this mercy is unmerited. Give me a couple more shots at this idea of mercy. It's a word which carries with it the idea of compassion. The idea of compassion that's not simply felt. That's important. But it's also compassion which is acted out. So if I feel compassion for you and it never gets outside of me in action in an attempt to help relieve that problem, either because I'm insensitive or I don't have the power to do it, then I have not expressed mercy. And in God's case, He got outside of Himself in a way, didn't He? To give us His mercy. He had to figure a way out to save us. And He did it, first of all, by sending His Son, who is fully God, to take our place, and then by making a way whereby we could be forgiven of our sins, knowing that we could not contribute anything to our salvation. I hope you know that if you have been born again, it has nothing to do with your merit. It has only to do with the mercy of our God. As we read from Mark 10 a little earlier, I love Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, one of the people who was considered probably by his townspeople in Jericho as a nuisance, Bartimaeus, who always seemed to have his hand out, he was a beggar. He was probably annoying to people. And here he is, sitting on the side of the road, and he hears that Jesus is in the vicinity. And when he's told that, he cannot 
restrain himself. And he says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And what does the text tell us? What happens? What happens is, is that there are people who are sternly telling him, hush, hush, don't bother the Lord. But he would not take no for an answer, would he? He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Even louder, I'm sure. And that caught Jesus' attention. And what does Jesus do? He comes and He exercises mercy upon him. He asks him the question, What do you want me to do for you? And He gave an obvious answer. I want to receive my sight again. Obviously, this man had been able to see it one time and he has lost his sight. And now what we see is He's asking Jesus for mercy. And did He give him mercy? He did, didn't He? He restored his vision. Wouldn't you like to have been there that day to see what his reaction was and followed him around a while? The word which is translated in the statement that Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well. The word made well is the same word that's translated throughout the book of Mark and also throughout the New Testament for this. I have saved you. It's the word for save, salvation. So not only was his sight restored, he was healed, but he was also saved. The bigger healing was in his spirit, which was dead. And then he came alive. And then his eyes were open. Figuratively, in his heart they were open. And physically they were open. And he could see the Lord. This is a picture of our crying out for the mercy of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul describes our God, His God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in this way. He says He is the God of all comfort and He is also the Father of mercies. We have a God who is a merciful God. And were it not for His mercy, and His mercies are new every morning, the Bible says, He says in Micah chapter 7 that He delights to show mercy. It's His nature. He does not like to see us languish in our misery. This is illustrated for us in the book of Judges in the 10th chapter when the children of Israel, who if you've read that book carefully, you know they go through a certain cycle of activity. They rebel against God and then... They repent when the consequences of their sin begin to crush them. And then God hears their cry for deliverance and He restores them to Himself. And then the third or fourth thing is they enter into a period of rest. Well, in this particular part of the book of Judges, they're in a place of rebellion. And God says to them, You have forsaken Me. You have exchanged idols for Me. You have sinned. You've ignored me. And here you are again, crying out to me. And God says something that's very shocking. He says, I am done with you. I'm not going to listen to your cries anymore because repeatedly what you have done is you've rebelled and then you found yourself between a rock and a hard place and then you cry out to me for forgiveness and I'm done. But do you know these Israelites were so desperate that they didn't take the Lord at face value. 
And you know what they did? They repented. They put away their false gods. They quit worshiping the idols. And then they cried out to the Lord, Lord, would you please, would you please have mercy on us? And this is what the writer of Judges says. I love it. It says, the Lord could not stand to look at their misery any longer. This is mercy. Now, please don't mishear what I'm saying. God does not wink at sin. Sin is detestable to God. Sin is primarily against Him. We sin against each other, but primarily sins against God. And so He does not take it lightly at all. But God responds to true repentance. I wonder if there's anybody here this morning who finds yourself in a ditch of sin and you have gotten off the path of following the Lord. And you, at one time in your life, you were restored to the Lord because you repented. But you have followed the gods of this world and you are hurting today because of it. And you can link the difficulty in your life to such behavior. And you want to get back where you belong, following the Lord. May I say, your presence here today would indicate it's not too late to get back, to be once more under the mercy of God. I encourage you to do that today, if that's where you find yourself. So one of the reasons that God's causing us to be born anew or again is because of the fact that being born again is unmerited. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But there's a second reason in this passage that would indicate that God is praiseworthy, that we're to eulogize Him because He has given us new life. He's given us a new beginning. We're new creations. He has given us the new birth. And that is because of the fact that this being born again is purposeful for our lives and for the kingdom of God. Its purpose is seen in the two dimensions of our lives after we are born again. This whole idea of being born again to a living hope. And that living hope is something that connects with us now And then it has a future application as well. This whole idea of hope was missing in Jesus' world and in Peter's world and the Apostle Paul's world. The Greco-Roman culture was void of hope. People were incredibly hopeless. And that comes as no surprise because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that people without God are without hope in the world. They had no hope. A tombstone, which archaeologists have discovered from that era, as they've done their digs, they've discovered, and it has this epitaph on it, two words in the original language. Here are the words. No hope. We live in a world where people have that gnawing at them all the time. They have no hope. And this is why later in the passage of Scripture, now remember what I mentioned earlier, that we have two big words or ideas in the book of 1 Peter, and what are they? Suffering 
for Christ's sake and hope. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Scripture says, Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and always be ready to give a defense or an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that is within you. Now, please understand that would apply to all of us, but it's very important that when we look at the Bible, when we study the Bible, we look at it in its context. And the context of the book of Peter and that command to always be ready to give an answer or defense for the hope that is within us is the context of suffering. That's the context. And so when people see you and me suffering because we know we have hope, and I'm going to help you if you don't understand what hope means. It's not what we mean as Americans, by the way. But when people see us with hope in the middle of suffering, and particularly the people who are acting ugly toward us, the people who are speaking ill of us, the people who are doing ugly things to us, when they see the way in which we respond according to what the Scripture teaches, and we're going to see that, that's what this book is about, what's going to happen is they're going to want to know, and they're going to ask us. Let me ask you, has anyone ever asked you to give a defense, an answer, for the hope they see in you? Now, I would dare say it's a real small minority present today who could say that. You know why? We haven't suffered for the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to run out and be a martyr today. Don't go look for somebody that you can insult in the name of Christ and get persecuted for it. That's not the point. That's not what Jesus would say. He says, follow me. Just follow me. And if we follow the Lord, there will be occasions when we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness on account of His name. Not on account of bad behavior on our part, but on account of His name. Let's get back to this word hope. Look again at the verse that we begin with. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The word hope in our thinking is, it's wishful thinking is what it is, right? I hope I win the lottery. Well, you need to buy a ticket if you're going to win the lottery, okay? And I'm not advocating that for anybody. I'm just saying we hope for these things. It's wishful thinking. The odds are great against it. But this matter of biblical hope has nothing to do with odds. you know what the odds of your being the recipient of living hope are? A hundred percent. One out of one person's born again by the living and abiding Word, one out of one has access to this living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who we are. That's a reason to praise the Lord, isn't it? Is that a reason to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And we should live in that atmosphere where we're constantly praising Him and blessing Him. This hope is a certain hope those words don't even go together in our way of speaking. They sound like they contradict each other. But it's a certain hope about a future event based upon the nature of God. Specifically, that God has promised us and what God promises, He delivers on. He is not a man that He should lie or a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do it? Has He promised and will He not fulfill it? 
Our God cannot lie. Our God is in charge of the timing of the reception in history of the promises which He makes to us. Sometimes there are intervening months. Sometimes many years in the case of Abraham, for instance, and Sarah. Or in the case of Joseph as he languished in an Egyptian prison feeling forgotten. The Scripture says until the time came that the promise which God had given to him came to pass, Joseph suffered because of the promise God had given him. Internally, his soul suffered. But what we do know is God will fulfill His promise. Let me give you a homely illustration of this. I understand that in college basketball, and I believe in college volleyball, and probably some other sports that are intercollegiate, that there is a window for early signings of people to sign a letter of intent to play for the university that they would love to play for it, given that that university has offered them a scholarship. If they sign in that early period, then they don't have to go through the rigors of all the recruiting deal, and they know they're in. They know that all they have to do is graduate and have enough credits that will pass the NCAA clearinghouse, and then they're in. But then there are a lot of other athletes, male and female, who have what it takes to play college sports, but they're not like the elite players. And they have to kind of sweat it out until signing day in February, the first Wednesday in February if it's football. I don't know what the signing day would be in volleyball and some of the other sports. But that's the difference. We already have signed the letter of intent. And a better way of saying it, God has signed it for us because He has given us an inheritance. Look at this in verse 4. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For what reason? To obtain an inheritance. Now, when we think of an inheritance, what do we think about as Americans? We think about something that is written in a will that is legal that upon the death of the one who produced the will that those properties and those monies, those things that were part of the estate, at least some of them will come to the name or the names of the people in the estate. Isn't that what we think of? But in biblical thinking, inheritance had to do with something that was yours by virtue of your being a child of a person. If you were the firstborn, if you were Jewish, and you were the secondborn, you got part of the inheritance. It was already yours. It belonged to you already, even before your father passed away. We know this in the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son comes and he says, I want my share of the inheritance, and I want it now. It was audacious for him to do it. It was insulting. He's basically saying, I wish you were dead, father. But the father gave him his share, and what was it? How much was it? It was one-third as the secondborn. The elder brother who stayed at home, he got two-thirds of it. So it was already the possession of the elder brother and the secondborn. It was already the possession. What that says to us is that this inheritance, which is ours, not just after 
something happens, but right now when we come to be born again, it becomes ours right now. And let's hasten on so we don't slight the nature of the inheritance. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. This means it cannot decay. Everything in our universe that you and I could inherit has the seed of decay in it. The law of entropy. All physical systems in our world are leaning in the direction of deterioration. Correct? All things physical. But in this case, what is awaiting us uh, is imperishable. It cannot go away. It's also described as undefiled. The word translated undefiled means that which is without stain. It was used to describe something that had been stained with paint or without paint. In other words, it can't be messed up. And what that tells us that our inheritance, which is reserved for us in heaven, is imperishable but also undefiled. That's wonderful, isn't it? To think that it can't be messed up. Every baseball game that's played today, there'll probably be, I don't know how many teams there are in the professional ranks, somewhere around 30 teams. So that means there are probably 15 games played today, something like that. Every game will probably have at least one error in it. Every game played usually has an error in it. When you look at your face on the mirror, if you look close enough, you can find some flaw on your face. Can you? I can't believe it. I'm 66 years old and I had a pimple on my face this week. That's what you call delayed in adolescence. I'm thinking, man, I could look at that with hope, maybe. It's ridiculous. And then it says in the next description, will not fade away. Some of your translations says about this inheritance of ours. It's ours already. It's been secured for us. It's ours and it will not fade away. This was used to describe flowers which were withered. It was also used to describe a body, particularly the face, which due to illness or advancing years had begun to fade away. Good news for us who know Jesus is that though the outer man wastes away, the inner man will be renewed day by day. But what we know is that what is true about our inheritance is it's going to be beautiful, beyond description. What we're going to receive in this great inheritance is incredibly beautiful. The identity of the inheritance remains something of a mystery. We know it's in heaven, right? I don't think it's having to do with the physical properties that are described in the book of Revelation, the streets of gold and the gates of pearl. I don't think it has to do with a mansion just over the hilltop. I think it really has to do with the person of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know Him in part now, right? But we're going to know Him totally there. And there's nothing that's going to besmirch our inheritance. It will include the other things, things that we haven't even thought about, I'm sure, 
that we tend to fixate on instead of fixing on the Lord because He's going to be there. And look what He says. Our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. Now, this word reserved is a word which means it was reserved, it is reserved, and it will never be unreserved for us. Perhaps you've traveled before, had a reservation, go in, maybe even with a piece of paper in your hand to verify that you have made a reservation. I had this happen to me in Phoenix about seven or eight years ago. I went in after a ball game I'd been to. I was worn out, and I put the information down. They said, sir, we don't have it in our system. I said, well, look at the paper. Sir, I'm sorry, it's not in the system. I said, may I speak to the manager? Yes, sir, I am the manager. It's not in the system. (laughs) So there I was at nearly midnight in Phoenix, and it was still 100 degrees, I think. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? So what every male would probably do, I got in my car and I started driving to El Paso, right? And I had to stop along the way, which was not a disaster, but nobody's going to cancel this reservation. Why? God made it for you. If you know the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, beware. In Dante's Divine Comedy, over the door leading into the place of the dead, this is what he saw written. It's somewhere in my notes. And it's getting late. Well, basically, what he saw there was know that everyone who enters here has no hope. There's no hope. But in Christ, we have hope, don't we? Because it's been reserved for us. It's waiting on us in heaven because we've been born again. That's the reason to praise Jesus, isn't it? And then he goes on to say about us who are protected... And the idea, are protected, is a present tense idea. Are being protected all the time. And the word protected is a military term, which was used to describe a detail on guard duty protecting someone or something. So, we, not only is that place safe for us, but we are safe in the meantime, in this life. We are safe. Thank God for that. We are safe in the hand of Christ Jesus Himself says, No one can snatch them out of My hand. He says, I and the Father are one. My Father, who is greater than all, no one can take them out of the Father's hand. If we're in Christ, number one, the place has been reserved for us. Number two, we are being protected now and throughout time and then even into eternity. Through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When Jesus comes back, those of us who are alive could be us. We could be that generation. We'll follow those who are in the grave. They'll be resurrected in Christ. They'll meet Christ in the air, and then we'll follow them up, and we'll come in and usher in the kingdom of Christ here on earth, the millennial reign of Christ. That's wonderful to think about, isn't it? Do you have such an inheritance? There's a man who died in 2012 in New York City. He lived on Staten Island. His name was Roman Bloom. He was a Holocaust survivor. 
And once he came to the United States in the late 1940s, he began to trade in real estate. When he died, his wife had preceded him in death. He never had a child. He had no living sibling. He had no living relative as far as those who do such searches could discover. And so, here's a problem. He did not produce a will. You know how big his estate is to this day? $40 million. The biggest unclaimed inheritance or estate in the history of New York State. It's unclaimed. Our gods got heirs. We are heirs of God. That's what the Bible says if we've been born again in Romans 8. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It's ours to claim this inheritance. But you have to be born again. You say, well, that's a problem, Mike. If I'm understanding what you're saying, you're saying I can't do anything to get born again. Well, you know you're right. You can't. We can't save ourselves. But Christ says to you today that if you will receive Him, but as many as received Him, to those who believe in His name, God has given the right to such people to become His child. 